Welcome to Season 4 of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer. I've worked in the animal health care industry, and prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician so they can share their own directions and journeys, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they've made it all fit. Thank you for joining me as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. Let's thank Zoetis too, okay? Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support this incredible profession. So thank you, thank you. Today, Dr. Christina Tran sits down for a chat with us on our virtual couch. Are you comfortable? I am comfortable. Thank you, Kim. Very good. Excellent. And should I call you Tina or Christina? Uh, You can call me Tina. I only am called Christina if I get in trouble with my mom. Okay. All right. Absolutely. Then Tina it is. So Dr. Christina Tran, you're not in trouble, by the way, is an (laughs) associate professor and clinical relations lead veterinarian at University of Arizona College of Veterinary Medicine, as well as a consultant for Ask.Vet, which is a veterinary telehealth provider. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, we're glad you're here. I first want to point out something very cool um, because I think it puts an important spin on our chat and I imagine has influenced your life journey, which is you are a first generation Filipino American, right? Correct. Uh So you were raised outside of Chicago and, and just tell us like, what was that like growing up? So I, you know, I had kind of a, a unique spin on why I decided to become a veterinarian. Um, Oddly enough, my extended family, most of which at the time was in the Chicagoland area, um, I had an uncle and an aunt who were married to one another who had uh, become veterinarians and uh, went to veterinary school in the Philippines and then came to the U.S. and started a small animal practice outside of Chicago. They had kids, our cousins, who were very similar in age to us. And so we spent many summers and breaks in the back of their clinic, learning how to clean kennels and how to, uh, you know, just the inner workings of a veterinary hospital, really. And they provided us with all of our pets growing up, so all of our dogs. And I also had another uncle who married into the family who was a, a veterinarian as well, whose practice was in the Midway Airport area. And so, um, and, a, and a cousin who went to veterinary school before I went to veterinary school. So I actually had quite a few role models in my extended family that exposed me to veterinary medicine at a young age. And I was very fortunate and I, I didn't recognize it at the time that that is unusual to have that many role models so close in proximity to yourself. So um, I have no doubt that my aunt becoming a veterinarian and modeling that for me was a direct correlation to me then seeing myself as as the same. So that's, that's kind of where that came in uh, as far as my background. Did you think without your aunt being in that position as a veterinarian, do you think you would have still pursued it, that career? You know, I honestly don't know that I would have because they not only were they role modeling for me up close, but they also provided us with all our pets growing up. And so I was involved in their care. And so I I suspect that had had we not been given those pets growing up, then I would have had no access to veterinarians at all because I don't know that my parents would have 
um, decided to, to get pets regard, you know, it, you know, if it wasn't for that fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when, at what point or, or what age were you like, yes, I am going to be a veterinarian? I think it, it's, I think it's pretty typical. I, I, that decision was made very early in my mind because, um, I'm, I'm fairly introverted. And so I, and, and very empathic. And so I felt very connected to our pet's uh, as a young child. And, and so I was very much a part of their care, their day-to-day care. And um, I love science. I love the critical thinking and the problem solving that comes with that. And so I learned that over time, that that's crucial to becoming a, a veterinarian. And so I think early on was that initial fire of this is what I want to do. And then it just became reinforced as I got older and uh, recognized that I really had a passion for the sciences. And, and then combined with that, I've learned over time that uh, I, I love to communicate with people, that that is another key aspect of being a great veterinarian. And uh, it's something that I've practiced and gotten better at, and I'm still learning. Um, but it's definitely, you know, it's, it's definitely all played a part in that initial spark of wanting to be a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if I mean, it sounds like your family was very supportive. What about at the time, kind of society around you in the area? Did did you experience or did your family experience any uh, prejudice or any challenges in that aspect that you saw early on? No, I would say that I was fortunate that, you know, we, we grew up upper middle class in a suburb of Chicago that was fairly affluent. Um the public high school that I went to was relatively diverse in population, quite a few different Asian populations represented. And, um, and I had the same experience actually when I did my undergrad at, at University of California at Davis, that it was again a very, because it is California, it had a very diverse population of undergraduates. Um, and I would say it actually wasn't until veterinary school that not necessarily that I experienced prejudice, but it was the first time that I recognized that being a person of color in the veterinary profession was somewhat unusual. Um, so I wouldn't say that I had experienced any overt prejudice when I was in veterinary school, but um, you know, there's microaggressions that happen throughout my career. Um, you know, comments like, oh, your English is so good, you know, making assumptions about where I'm from. Um, and, and so I think, you know, so no, I, I don't think that I experienced any of those prejudices growing up. I, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to be in environments um, that were very supportive. I want to switch gears for a moment, but it's all still related. You had been on faculty at Portland Community College in the veterinary technology department and then became director of veterinary technology and clinical assistant professor at Purdue University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Then in 2016, you co-authored a book called Exploring the Gray Zone, Case Discussions of Ethical Dilemmas for the Veterinary Technician. You know, ethics, and I'm curious, what what was happening at the time and what was the catalyst for becoming involved in that book? I think really a a lot of what the impetus for for authoring or co-authoring that book came from being in 
in an academic setting and educating veterinary technicians and veterinary nurses that oftentimes find themselves in that gray zone because they're not the veterinarian, because they're not the practice owner, but yet they're the direct interface with the client. Oftentimes they see and hear things that can cause ethical dilemmas for them, whether it's the care of an animal, um, whether it's a breakdown in communications or misunderstanding with a client, they can sometimes find themselves very much in that gray zone. Ethics is an area where oftentimes there is no right and wrong answer that there's shades of gray, which is why it's called the gray zone. And so it was really an opportunity to open up some conversation, not not just with the veterinary technology students that I was working with, but just to open it up broadly to the to the community to say, you know, these are discussions we need to be having with our vet tech students so that we can better prepare them for the reality of being out in practice or in research settings or wherever they find themselves in the veterinary community. See, this is really... Um, makes me pause for a minute because as you're talking about the community at large, why not call it, now I understand the gray zone, but call it for veterinary professionals because like everyone needs to know about this. So really the the reason that we didn't have it more broadly talking about veterinary professionals is because, at least in my mind, veterinarians, whether they're associate veterinarians or practice owners, they oftentimes have like a higher degree of control as to what happens. And veterinary technicians, oftentimes, while they are working side by side with veterinarians, they necessarily don't always feel comfortable to voice their concerns or... Um, you know, find themselves in this oftentimes middle ground where the client is telling them a lot more information than what the client is directly telling the veterinarian. So then it's a dilemma of, you know, what part of this conversation is private? What part of this conversation am I compelled to share with the veterinarian who then oftentimes has the ability and the influence to then make decisions for for the care of that animal. So I think that's really why we wanted to focus on the veterinary technician's role is because it is so nuanced. And there are a lot of push and pulls that happen with being a veterinary technician that we oftentimes overlook. Yes. And I think just talking about it now makes me think that is a really interesting position to be in. And I'm curious, what do you recommend to a a veterinary technician then in those in that sort of position. It's tricky. So so what do you recommend? I think ideally they have a good working relationship and, and a high level of trust with their veterinarians and their practice manager or medical director that they can, in that moment, step aside and explain what's going on and, and remember to advocate for the, for the animal because ultimately that is what we all strive for is to provide the best care possible for the animals that are under our care, whether you're a veterinarian or veterinary technician. Ideally, it's 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 having that extra level of support that they can then move forward to say, okay, so either the messaging comes from me myself as a veterinary technician or the messaging comes from the hospital at large that this X, Y, and Z will or will not be allowed. You know, I think there's different ways to look at it. And, and that's just one scenario as far as the cl- you know, there's something potentially going on between the client and the patient and the veterinary technician. I mean, there's other ethical dilemmas that people can find themselves in as well, as far as, you know, technicians are oftentimes very much spending a lot of their time in the, the quote unquote back of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So there can be interactions with other staff or even other veterinarians that can create ethical dilemmas for them. 
um, you know, unethical behaviors such as, um, you know, taking supplies or using services or, um, you know, taking radiographs on your own animal without telling anyone. I mean, they they could be observing things like this, um, you know, or maybe somebody is being physically very abusive with an animal in the back of the hospital. And this is a person you work with every day. And so how do you work through those very difficult situations when you are kind of in that middle position? So yeah, there's a lot of different scenarios that we run through and certainly we don't run through all of them. And I think at the end of the day, what I recognize about co-authoring that book is that it is very much a gray zone and there's there's no right answer to, to any one of those dilemmas. So there's not like a formula that you can say, okay, so... I think in all of these cases, this is how I will proceed. I think it very much depends on the perception of what is your working relationship with those around you? What is the impact if you don't do anything? So all of those things kind of play into it. So it's really an opportunity to open up some discussion with veterinary technicians and, and students to say, these are things to be thinking about so that if you find yourself in this situation, you have some tools in your toolkit to help you through that process. Yeah, and it sounds like the nice thing is, is if you give them the tools for this toolkit, regardless of what the environment they're in, if it's a toxic culture, if it's a very positive culture, you are giving them some fundamental tools that they can apply regardless of what the environment or situation is. Yes, Yes. Yeah. I mean, that was that was really what we were aiming for is not that we were going to say, here's all the right answers, because in most of veterinary medicine, it's really hard to say this is the one right answer. This is the one right way to do something. And so, you know, recognizing that veterinary medicine at large is a very dynamic, constantly changing profession. Uh, you know, I think that ethics definitely falls into that area where you can't there's not a right or wrong every time. Mm-hmm. You're right. And Can you give us a couple of examples of tools that are are most helpful? I think part of it is we, we try to put different lenses for people to be thinking about the ethical dilemma that they're finding themselves in. So one of those lenses is how does this affect the care of the animal? One of these things is how does this affect your relationship with the client or the other individuals, the other people that are involved in this? And how do you you know, personally, you know, how are you affected by this? And I think when you, you know, and then there's also other aspects, other lenses, as far as legally, are there any, are there any responsibilities that you feel? So in cases of potential neglect or abuse, I think that there's that legal lens that you have to think of. And so it's really the idea of not really separating your heart from your head, but recognizing that your heart is playing a part in in making determinations, but really to put a more objective process to determining, you know, what needs to happen when you're facing an ethical dilemma. So we try to look at it from different lenses so that those are some of the tools that they can use moving forward. I would also like to talk to you about your volunteer work. Um, you, it seems you're very passionate about volunteering and you serve in several positions on different veterinary organizations, such as you are president of the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association. 
How did you get involved in that? So that organization is very close to my heart. It started in 2014, way before I even knew about it. And uh, it started as really just like a Facebook group where people could share experiences and share resources and connect with one another. And so I had joined at some point after 2014 online. And then by 2017, a call went out asking for board members to really kind of solidify the process. And so I couldn't pass up the opportunity, so I I went ahead and became a founding board member and subsequently uh, president-elect last year. And it really, I think what it is, is a lot of the initial thought behind it was that currently in veterinary schools, many veterinary schools have a voice chapter. And so the voice chapter in its original form was focused largely on culture and ethnicity and uh, providing a support for the students. And then since then, it's gone through a name change. And so it more broadly looks at diversity and inclusion, not just race and ethnicity, which I think has its pluses and minuses for sure. And that could be like a whole nother conversation. And, And there's probably a whole lot of other people that should be involved in that conversation. And so, but I'm so old that when I was in vet school, there was no voice (laughs) chapter. And then so um, when I heard about this, the initial thought that that came through the founders' minds is, well, now we're graduate veterinarians, but now we don't have a graduate version of voice, um, you know, to continue that support, to be able to offer mentorship back to those that are coming behind us. And so I think that was part of the initial thought is how can we then extend that voice experience, that voice networking past veterinary school? And so that's that's where it really started. And so when we came on board as founding members in 2017, that's when we started to flesh out more of the mission, the vision, what are the goals? And it ranges from quite a few things. Um, I think in general, broadly offering support across the veterinary community. So um, we are largely, probably the most active we are is in our Facebook group, which is a closed group, but it's open to everyone in the veterinary profession. So pre-vet students, uh, current students, vet tech students, graduates, practice managers, those in industry, research, academia, anyone who basically has a vested interest in increasing diversity and inclusion with respect to race and ethnicity is invited to the conversation. And so we share a lot of resources. We have an interest in expanding access to veterinary care to underserved populations. Mentorship is something that we're passionate about. And so we're looking at a couple of opportunities to partner with others on offering mentorship to those that are either early trying to become a veterinary student all the way to those that have already graduated and are, you know, kind of making their first steps out into the career. And then, of course, providing lots of resources for people, whether it's original content or just resharing. I mean, there's tons of great content, especially now in the last few months. There's just been so much great content that's been made available. I think making people aware of what those resources are. We've had a lot of businesses and associations reaching out and students even reaching out to us asking for specific resources and and how to educate those around them, which I think is amazing because I think that that we need to continue to have allies so that our voice can be heard and at the same time provide them a way to educate themselves so that the burden doesn't fall to MCVMA or other organizations like us that there's opportunity to say, here's, you know, some great resources that you can then, you know, in your own time, educate yourself and then come back and, and, and let's have some good discussions. Like let's have some really crucial conversations about race and ethnicity. So, um, so yeah, it's been great. It's been a little bit of a roller coaster as of late. I, 
I have a great team that works very closely with me. I consider them an extension of my family. That's how much time we spend together now. And they're so passionate. And I think one of my own things that have, that's come out of this experience as president is really, for me, wanting to empower the people around me to do what they are passionate about. And um, because I can see in them and it gives me, I'm like getting goosebumps right now because there are so many amazing minds that I'm surrounded with, both within MCVMA, but then all the affinity orgs together. And just in the general population, I mean, there are students that I've met that I think you're going to do amazing things in this profession, but you have to believe in yourself. And so whatever I can do to empower them, to connect them to others so that they can continue on their path to success is is really a passion for me as well to, to recognize that I have a role in getting that next generation of veterinarians to the forefront as, as quickly as possible. So so that's been really important for me. Well, I, I mean, the passion that you feel it just comes through the microphone. I can, you know, we're FaceTiming too, so I can see it in your face. It's obvious. And I can see how it would get even stronger being surrounded by people who are, who have so much potential and you're just like, oh, this is incredible how we can help. And, 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 are, you know, the people around you are passionate too. My question is, I mean, this seems so close to your heart. Were there any specific experiences in your life that made this um, initiative so close to your heart? Because you seem very passionate about lots of things. And, and I'm curious, like, what, was there something, were there things that happened in your life that just drove this into your heart? I think for me, and this is just my own personal account, is I think it's just that, that very early in my career recognition that I feel like an only. The reality is when I was in veterinary school in a class of 100, I could count on one hand, at least visibly, how many people of color were in the classroom with me. And it, and it was that feeling of almost what I oftentimes term as impo- double imposter syndrome, where I think most veterinary students in general feel some level of, of imposter syndrome early in vet school to say, I'm, I think there's a clerical error. I don't actually think I'm supposed to be in vet school. I think they must have switched our IDs or something because I'm not supposed to be here. And so I had definitely imposter syndrome. And even today, I struggle with different versions of imposter syndrome. But then I think at that same moment, you know, during orientation of veterinary school, I also felt a second level of imposter syndrome where I thought maybe, okay, so I don't feel like I belong here because I don't know that I'm smart enough. But now I'm starting to think that the reason I'm here is because I check off a box somewhere that because I'm Filipino, because I'm Asian, then now maybe that's why I'm in the room. And then that really can mess with you. And it, and it, and, and I think that is the part that really drives me to continue to to do the work that I do with MCBMA and then just to, to, to amplify the voices of others is that feeling of you're not the only. And even if you are the only, that doesn't discount your feelings and your experiences, you know, that you deserve, like I say this to all the veterinary students that I meet, I say, you deserve to be in this room just as much as anyone else. I have worked on admissions for both vet tech and for veterinary school. And there is no way that any program worth its salt is going to allow a student to be accepted in if they, do, if they don't think that they can succeed because it does them no good. Veterinary students often don't recognize this, but attrition rates are very closely looked at. <laughs> so, and so they're, they're, it does them no good to extend an offer to a student 
if they don't think that they're going to succeed. And so I think that that is, that is something that I wish somebody had said to me early and often in my career, because I really did doubt myself. And even now, even when I take different positions, I sometimes wonder in the back of my head, are they, is, am I checking a box? Is that why I'm being considered for this? I always have to remind myself, and actually my husband plays a part in this as well, because he has nothing to do with veterinary medicine, but he's a very, he's, he's very level-headed about things. Uh, at one point in my career, I really doubted my abilities to do the job that I was hired for. And I remember saying, I think they just hired me because I'm Asian. And he said, you know, in in his very calm voice, he said, do you really think that they would hire somebody, onboard you, invest in you, move you across the country if they didn't think you could do the job? Why would they do that? And I thought, oh, darn it, he's right. (laughs) Yes, he's got a point, a strong point, yes. But but it's a reality is that I think that part of the passion for me is that I want those that find themselves in veterinary medicine that are considered marginalized, that their voices need to be heard. And if I can help in that process um, to validate their concerns, to bring those concerns forward and have them addressed, um, to make others aware of you know, it's not, it shouldn't be on the backs of marginalized individuals to make the change happen. It should really be all of us working together. You know, we need allies. And so I think that is really where a lot of this drive comes from is to know that I know the stories of so many people. I've experienced some myself, but there are certainly so many stories out there about things that are happening real time within the profession that need to be addressed as, as, you know, with respect to systemic racism. That's really where a lot of it is. So for as as tired as I sometimes find myself recently with all of the things that MCVMA is involved in, I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm so inspired by the people around me and all the good work that they're doing that I just, I can't stop. So (laughs) speaking of your husband, you seem very busy. Where does he fit in your world? Do you see him much? (laughs) <laughs> well, I see him more now because the the position, the faculty position I have is uh, while we're in a pandemic, it is actually a remote position. So I um, am not expected to be at the vet school proper on a day to day basis. So my position is in the suburbs of Phoenix. And so and he is he has a remote position as well and has for a long time. And so we actually see each other more now because we're in the same building, you know, we're at home all the time. I think he recognizes that I have passions in volunteering, especially within organized veterinary medicine. And it's, it's, it really is. He's a great sounding board for me because sometimes I get so tunnel visioned and emotional about things that oftentimes he's, he's that uh, rational voice that is outside of veterinary medicine. That is, I mean, he's, he's a business major. His, he has an MBA. And so his mind is in a completely different realm. And, um, but he does, he deals with a lot of the same things as far as conflict, as far as, you know, how do you get people to collaborate? How do you get your message across in a way that is still, is passionate but still objective. And, and I think he's really that voice of reason to say, here's, here's another way to look at it. Um, he is very much an implementer. So he likes to think of ways to solve the problems. And it's funny because we oftentimes have the conversation where I say, okay, and I'll start it off. I'll say, I don't want you to solve this problem. I just want you to hear it and to support me and to say, yes, I'm in your corner. I don't want you to actually solve it. And and so we've had to have that conversation a few times because he oftentimes is a problem solver. And so if I come with 
come to him with a problem. He wants to try to solve it. And that's oftentimes not what I'm asking for. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, but he's fully supportive. Uh, you know, I think that especially with the most recent stuff going on with MCVMA, you know, uh, working with the AVMA and and everything, he has really been a great supporter of the cause of the initiative. He has actually shared some of that information with his work team. And, you know, because I think they can all relate to veterinary medicine on some level, either they know someone who's a veterinarian, or they have pets that they take to their veterinarian, or they're on farms, and they have a veterinarian come out. So I think it was really eye opening for some of them as well to recognize that um, veterinary medicine continues to be a very white profession. And, and it was like this moment of introspection for many of them to say, you're right. I think other than your wife, I don't know of any people of color that are veterinarians. And so it's good to know that these conversations are being had outside of the veterinary space. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking about voices that can be heard that we were, we talked about that just a few minutes ago. And I know you're also involved in animal welfare and shelter medicine. So I wanted to explore that too, because is that a theme of making sure voices that maybe can't, you know, in this case, can't speak, be heard? Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's in veterinary medicine, oftentimes that is part of the the theme, right? You're, that we're that we are here to advocate for the best care of the animals. You know, the work that I do with the Animal Welfare Committee with AVMA, as well as my previous work in a, in a county shelter for shelter medicine, I think it really spoke to me, specifically the shelter medicine in terms of it combined a lot of my interests. So animal welfare, for sure, being one of them. I also am very passionate and I'm always trying to learn more about animal behavior. And the fact that the majority of animals that end up in shelter situations are because of some type of behavioral problem. And then herd health is also a very interesting um, aspect of veterinary medicine that I find intriguing because, you know, herd health, you oftentimes think of in terms of large animal, right? Like out on a farm or on a production facility, but, but herd health within a kennel situation or in a shelter situation is still very important. You know, you can have a virus just like cause all kinds of havoc with cats and dogs. And before you can even get a handle on it, you know, it's, it's bad. And oftentimes it ends up in the press, you know, so there's that impact as well, as far as social media um, and media in general. So, so yeah, I, you know, it's definitely a thread. Um, I, I have a lot of threads that I find myself in. I think, you know, I, I am always amazed at how small the veterinary community is. And I love connecting, making, being connectors of people so that I can kind of help them along their path of success. So I, I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about organized veterinary medicine it, is it has afforded me some opportunities to to come in very close contact with people that are very inspiring. But at the same time, while they inspire me, I can find other individuals that then I can direct them to to say, here you go. You wanted to do X. Here's the person you need to talk to so that I can thread them through that needle a little bit faster than if they had to do it themselves. Um, I, I do feel like Everyone in veterinary medicine is probably two or three degrees of separation from one another. Yep. So I, I find that fascinating. So um, I love connecting people. As we talk about connecting people, I think the million dollar question is when we talk about inspiration and determination and, and fighting the odds. And as we look at your career, I mean, this is incredible. You're on faculty at University of Arizona College of Veterinary Medicine, which is huge, which is amazing. How did you do it? My career path since veterinary school has been very uh, circuitous, I guess I would say, because if you had asked me 
when I graduated, what I planned to do in 20 years, I probably honestly would have said I would be owning a practice, uh, a cat and dog practice somewhere in Santa Barbara, California, because I love Santa Barbara. You know, if you had said, well, do you think you'll ever find yourself in an academic setting teaching veterinary students, teaching veterinary technology students? I would have just laughed in your face because I'm completely introverted. I um, am very uncomfortable speaking in public. And I had never created my own PowerPoint in my entire life. In fact, when I was in veterinary school, I think those were the first few PowerPoints that I had ever seen done. So, you know, I think the path I took, while it seems very circuitous, I think ultimately it has helped me to better determine what it is that I want to do in veterinary medicine. And so I think ultimately being at University of Arizona College of Veterinary Medicine is a culmination of things because my position is specifically focused on developing the clinical year. So in in the University of Arizona's program, they they have it compressed to a three-year, year-round program rather than a four-year. They don't have a teaching hospital. And so the plan is that year three will all be clinical rotations that are done not just within Arizona, but then throughout the U.S. And so myself and a colleague, that is our primary responsibility within the college. And so I think my years of private practice experience, shelter medicine experience, teaching experience, my roles that I played in organized veterinary medicine, I think they all play very well into my current role. I'm excited to be able to utilize all of that knowledge in one position. And it's also great that to to be part of a very supportive team that recognizes the value of the general practitioner and what they can bring to an academic setting. And at the same time, being able to work very closely with boarded specialists so that, you know, to recognize that they have areas of expertise that I don't have. And how do we work together to create this this unique situation that is not only three years year round, but also is very much student focused in the learning. So it's not death by PowerPoint anymore, not at not at University of Arizona. It's very much student focused. A lot of what we'll be doing is peer instruction with the students and then also team-based learning. So they'll very much learn from each other um, under the guidance, obviously, of faculty. And really what I love is that they're essentially in the three years, they'll learn how to learn, which, again, is that whole growth mindset, lifelong learning that really is you know, key to being successful in the profession. You described your career as circuitous. Was it circuitous because you you kept hitting a barrier or someone said, you can't do this. And then you had to shift gears or was it, were there just pivotal points where you go, oh, this is cool. I want to do this. And then it went in that direction. So I would say it's probably the latter, um, but it's also a combination. So when I took my first academic position at Portland Community College as a, a vet tech instructor, at that point I had been doing shelter medicine work and relief or contract work for several years. And I just, it was just a happenstance that I looked in the classifieds and saw the ad. But at that point in time, I had come in contact with a lot of graduates of the local veterinary technology program. At the time, there was only one in Oregon. And so they were all coming out of the same school. And I thought, these graduates, there's something they're doing well at that vet tech program. And I need to be a part of that success. And I was a little curious as to what it was like to be an instructor and could I do it? And, and I wanted to be able to impact the profession larger. And, and so I 
threw my hat in the ring. And, you know, I think that's a lesson in it in and of itself is the idea that you don't have to check all the boxes off before you put your name in for an for a position, because I certainly did not have all the boxes checked. To me, it was an opportunity to stretch myself. At the time, I thought, oh, well, this is this is great. I am terrified of public speaking. So yeah, I think I'm going to throw my hat in and see if I can, you know, if I can be an instructor. It really was an opportunity for me to stretch. I was curious. And at the end of the day, I, I tell myself, as I do with any time I apply for a position is what's the worst that'll happen? They'll just say no. But if I don't try, I'll never know. And so that has really been what I have relayed to my students and to those, you know, around me and even to our own kids that I say, you know, you're never going to know unless you try. The worst that'll happen is no, it won't work out. At least you tried. So, um, so that was that first initial move into academia. The opportunity to go to Purdue was, um, Again, I just happened to look in JAVMA, the journal of the AVMA, and I looked in the classifieds and I thought, oh, maybe I could do this, become program director. I've been teaching veterinary technology for um, a year and a half, (laughs) so maybe I could do this. And I looked and I said, these are... This is what I want to do. I mean, to, to have a bigger impact, to, to, to join a, a veterinary school and not only have uh, veterinary technology students that I'm teaching, but also have a little bit of um, teaching experience with the veterinary students. And um, as an administrator, to be at that higher level of understanding of how the college works is also, um, it's, it's pretty eye-opening at that level. And um, again, I said, well, what's the worst that'll happen? I just won't be asked to interview. And then that's not what happened. <laughs> so so then I, and I certainly, again, did not check off all the boxes when I went to apply. And I said, I'm just going to take a chance and see if they can see that I have the potential, that I have the foundational skills to then build off of. Um, because, and, and, and it's interesting because that idea of checking all the boxes, I, I saw that somewhere recently in an article or, or maybe it was um, a podcast I was listening to where they said, if you can check off all the boxes, you are you you are overqualified for that position. There will be no growth. And I thought, you know, that's totally true. But in the mind of many, in fact, in the minds of many women, more than men, I think, I think there have been studies to show that women tend to want to check off all the boxes before they decide they'll throw their hat in the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas men, I forget the, the, the percentage, but I thought it was something like if they can cross off, you know, 60% of the skills, they're, they're all in. And I just think, wow, that doesn't sound like a lot, (laughs) but they'll do it. That's, that's kind of how things started in academia. And uh, part of it was definitely happenstance. Part of it has been intentional and it certainly hasn't been a smooth path. I mean, I, so I was at Purdue for three and a half years and then my husband's work required us to move closer to a campus. He works for Intel. So we then had to make a decision to move to one near one of the Intel campuses. And so that was really the reason that we left Indiana. I started my house call practice, went back to doing relief for a while until I could figure out what I wanted to do next. And I think that's another story is the whole, as you become older and wiser and pickier, you then decide, what is it that I really want to do? Like, is it a job or is it a career? That was one of the things that I, you know, I luckily my, my spouse is very supportive of that decision to not take a full-time associate position again, that there were other ways that I could be impactful within the profession. And so the opportunity when it came to join University of Arizona, it did not come straight away. There were many applications in the meantime 
in that move to Arizona and since then that I didn't make it past the first round of the application process. Um, I think easily 10 to 15 applications for different academic positions, different positions within industry that I was not selected for. And every single time it hurt. But at the end of the day, I just dusted myself off and said, you know what? There are other opportunities. And maybe this is a blessing because maybe this is not because there was some part of me that that had some reservations about the job description to say, do I really want to commit to that much travel? Do I really want to commit to this aspect of the of the position? And so um, when Arizona came by and I thought, this is perfect. I can be back in academia. I can utilize all my skills. I can continue to grow. I can have an impact on the profession and I don't have to move. <laughs> so Yes. And so I thought this, this is meant to be, this is exactly how it's meant to be. And, and, and they embrace all of the work that I've done, um, volunteer work that I've done with MCVMA and, and all of it has played very nicely into really our students now benefiting from the experience that I've had both in my work, in my work experience, but then also in my volunteer experience. So I think that has been really great too, that my volunteer experience isn't something that I have to hide, that it's something that is very much encouraged and supported is in the workplace. It has been, has been tremendous for me because I don't want to hide the fact that I'm president of MCVMA, that I sit on the board of directors for the Arizona Veterinary Medical Association. I, I want them to recognize that these are important parts of serving the profession and they do. So that's great. So we're just about out of time, but I I want to I I feel like I've learned so much during this podcast episode, and I I'd like to just Tina tell us what's the take home message for our listeners. Well, like what advice would you give? I think probably one of the biggest pieces of advice that I I'd want to share is to advocate. So beyond advocating for your patient, is to advocate <clears throat> for yourself that take the risk. And jump in with both feet and don't be afraid to nominate yourself for an award, for a committee, for whatever it is that is a passion for you. Advocate for those around you, you know, support them, support one another, empower each other, be free with your compliments to one another, because oftentimes that just you recognizing the good work of somebody else is a way to advocate for them. So, um, Really advocating on all levels is is an important part of being a veterinarian and being a veterinary professional. So that's it. Thank you, Tina, so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure to talk with you, too. I felt like we were old friends, you know? Me, too. <laughs> Me, too. Just chatting away. So this is perfect. Scrub Chat is a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetis Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get more information about life issues such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, I'm Dr. Kim Farina, and this is Scrub Chat.